We'd like to thank Spark for being the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast mini-series on the entrepreneurial progress being made in some of the world's most vulnerable states. Spark is a Dutch NGO that bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship in fragile and conflict-ridden regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. This show features the American founder and chief tree officer at the Desert Date Company. The Desert Date Company is a natural ingredient supplier and skincare brand based on the banks of the Nile River in northern Uganda. My guest was previously Spark's South Sudan country manager, a role she inhabited for four years, and which saw her implement an agribusiness program focused on value chain development. This conversation features insight into how to merge the conservation of threatened medicinal trees and a focus on creating meaningful wealth for underprivileged women with an ambitious commercial aspiration. This podcast was taped at the fringes of Spark's sixth annual Ignite Conference, a premier gathering of refugees, entrepreneurs, educators, private sector actors, government leaders, academics, and NGOs. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Spark. Hi, my name is Lauren Servan, and I'm the founder of the Desert Day Company. Um, we're a supply company out of northern Uganda, focusing on the desert, making desert date oil, but we also supply some other ingredients such as shea butter and Arabic gum. And we have a brand also, which we're going to be launching in the spring, which has ready-to-use products for consumers, and they're very, very lovely. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Lauren. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So tell everybody where this industrious plan you're up to is happening. Okay, so um, we're based in northern Uganda, right along the Nile, which is gorgeous, amazing mountains, hills, then the Nile. Um, so there we are collecting a nut from the desert date tree. It's a tree that's really been underutilized or really not utilized at all. When we first went to northern Uganda, they thought we were a little crazy because they're like, why are you collecting this waste product from the forest? Um, but yeah, now we've been collecting it and they've, you know, we've been pressing this oil and, it, and it's really, really nice for your skin. So we are starting in this region. It, we're right at the border at South Sudan. So we're going to talk a little more about that oil. I have some rubbed on my, on the back of my palm right now. You said that that part of Uganda is really beautiful, pristine even, but it's a troubled region, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so this region was pretty much cut off from any development during the um, during the time of Kony, and basically nothing has happened since then. So compared to the rest of Uganda, the roads are pretty underdeveloped. Um, there's no industry. There's very little opportunity for jobs. There's is massive deforestation. And as you can see, driving when you drive from the region to Kampala, there's just trucks and trucks and trucks of charcoal. Um, so this is something that we are also really to work on is it, it giving alternative forms of employment than charcoal because actually charcoal is really a poverty issue because um, most of the people who are making the charcoal don't actually use it they're just they're just making it to sell it so one of the things we'd like to provide is alternative forms of employment and then also look into alternatives to charcoal it's sad but i mean people are literally burning their their legacy i guess in that area just to survive yeah. 
and climate is changing. So the rains are different every year. It could be a global issue, but there's obvious forest that's been cut down. And so it, that is likely contributing also to some of the climate issues in the region. So how does a young lady from Philadelphia in the U.S., one, decide to pursue a venture of this nature, and then two, decide to pursue it in a place like Uganda, um, which is considerably far from where you grew up? <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a bit of a story. So when I was in school, there were a lot of South Sudanese at my school. We're about, there's a group of people, they used to call them the Lost Boys. Um, so we're about the same age. And when I was in school, they, they were going to the same school and we became really good friends. Um, the war ended right as we were all graduating. And so we were young. We decided to do projects together. Um, and the project ended up, we ended up building a secondary school and it turned, then turned into a scholarship program. So where's the school? Uh, where's all this? Oh, sorry. That's in Ye. It was in Ye, South Sudan. And, um, yeah, now it, then it turned into a scholarship program in the, in Ye, but war also broke out there recently. So, um, a lot. From, I, I still know the director, so she had brought a lot of the students to Uganda to study. Um, so then we met and we, we started another organization and then um, I ended up getting a job with Spark and I was working in South Sudan for four years. Um, but during, through this whole process, my friends had introduced me to this tree called the Desert Day Tree in English, but there they call it La Lop. So um, I've always had a huge interest in natural health and so every time I would eat it or someone would share it with me they would say oh this is our medicine for malaria diabetes blood pressure and I came across an article in 2011 that it was a wild edibles article by the FAO and it said that it gave us the English name and then I was able to find all this research on the tree and th that there has been real scientific research to show its medicinal uses so I got really excited and it also one of the benefits it said was cosmetic. And at that time, argan oil was getting really big and I saw really an opportunity because one of my major, my, my pa I have many passions, but yeah, natural health, women's employment, I saw an opportunity really to be able to employ women um, and to also protect the forest and the environment at the same time. So um, I've been in South Sudan off and on for the past 12 years. So it's my second home. Um, Uganda, I've been traveling through whenever I go to South Sudan. So. The whole region sort of feels like a second home, and I love the product, love our, our mission and our impact, and I'm really, I'm there for life, so. Let's talk about the oil a little bit before we go back to talking about, you know, the practicalities of what makes initiatives like yours work, perhaps address some of the oversimplifications around what economic upliftment looks like and what it involves. But before we do that, let's talk about this oil. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... This is how I know it's, it's definitely a natural product because my skin's absorbed it really, yeah. really well. I put it on a few minutes before we started this conversation. Uh, I struggle with eczema. I'm really sensitive to a lot of different things. My wife and I are both crazy about, you know, good things that are natural, natural and good for your body as well as your skin. I could see myself buying into this idea you know, and I imagine given all the different applications of your product, you've decided to go the cosmetic route. I sense there's a pragmatic reason for that. What's the big idea? Talk to me about the oil and the, the big sort of commercial opportunity here. Yeah, the brand is going to be basically a, an overall health company. Currently, the focus is on skincare. Oils are very big right now. 
So we would like to introduce this as a new oil. The so the, the new cumin oil, the new argon, the new black castor oil, that sort of thing. Exactly. So the numeral oil or... Yeah, because everyone's kind of always looking out for new oils. And the reason why this one is particularly good or better um, is that it's really made for your face. So when you're looking for a face oil, you don't want an oil that's too high in oleic acid, which is a saturated acid, which can clog your pores. But you want an oil that's very high in linoleic acid, which they actually say people with acne are missing linoleic acid from the, from the surface of their skin. So this helps prevent acne. It helps also... Um, heal wound, the wounds from acne. Um, actually, in ancient Egypt, they used to use it to heal scars and sunburn. So yeah, it's, it's really good for different skin conditions. We have a lot of people who use it for eczema because um, it, it has a, a steroid, a natural steroid in it. So yeah, we don't add any steroids. It's just a natural, it's called a disogenin steroid. Um, steroidal dysogenin. And then it also is anti-inflammatory, so it helps with some of that inflammation. Um, yeah, it's an overall very good product. It's also antibacterial, antifungal, and antiviral, which helps break down fungal walls of different skin issues. Yeah. So talk to me about how, you know, how this tree grows. Does it grow naturally? Is it, uh, is it cultivated? What's the impact on the environment to harvest? And... Have you thought about how, you know, the beneficiation circle ends up benefiting the community this, uh, this uh, tree grows in? Yeah. So this tree, it's a wild tree. It's been growing in the region for as long as people can remember. So by harvesting it, we're actually protecting it because we don't harvest any wood. Everything, we just harvest the, the seed of the tree. Um, and we're working on getting Fair Wild certified. So they make sure that you're not harvesting every nut. Um, and we're, we're not doing that yet either, but um, so that you're still harvesting sustainably, even with harvesting seeds. The way in which we're doing it really benefits the community. The community actually is now protecting the tree. Would this have been a tree that the community might have turned into charcoal otherwise? So there is a place, it's really sad, in Mahdi language where we are, the tree is called Lugba. So there was a whole area called Lugba tree, like tree. The place of the Lugba. The place of the Lugba. There are no trees there anymore. No Lugba, no, no desert date trees. They've all been cut down and deforested. Because actually this makes a really nice charcoal, which burns really long and with less smoke. So it's a desirable tree for that product. But through making the oil, the community sees the value to protect it. It also helps maintain climate change. It also, it's very, it's a very, been studied to a tree to prevent climate change because the roots go very, very deep. So it holds the soil in place and it has a nice canopy. Um, so they, in West Africa, they're, they're building this green wall and they've been planting it actually. But in Northern Uganda, they haven't been planting it, but we do also plan to do some reforesting. Right. And so how big is your enterprise right now? Like how many people are you hiring? How big is your team? Yes. How big is the business right now? Um, right now is... Our like, management staff were two. Um, we're, we're still in our startup phase, um, but we're working with about 40 women. Uh, we have groups of 20 and 20 on either side of the river. That's 40 core women, but when we do the collection, we've documented about 100 or so because anyone, really it's open to anyone who hears about it and they want to collect, and then we just look at the quality and then we purchase from them. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like there's this binary approach to... And a story like yours, like going mainstream, and usually the, the one and the zero leaves 
the actual community or the actual domestic population left in the cold either way. So either this doesn't become big enough a thing to make uh, a mainstream impact to the economic well-being of the average Ugandan, the average person in the region you operate, or it becomes this massive thing in roles rolls in like the international big brands or you know or, or intermediaries and literally shut people out of their own resource and it, and its beneficiation how do we ensure that your story doesn't become one or the other you obviously want to grow and and make an impact here but someone's listening right now unilever for example yeah um, so this is something I'm really thinking about because we've really kind of created a strong bond with the community. When we're there, it's just we're there eating lunch with them every day and we get, yeah, we're really close. So the company right now is an LLC in the U.S., but I would like to register it as a B Corp, switch the registration, and the B Corp helps you preserve your mission. So it makes it not, because, you know, illegal, uh you have a legal ob obligation of your fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you may put profit over everything else. But when you have a B Corp, not tested in court yet, but it's, you know, we'll see what happens once it actually goes to court, that you can put your social mission and profits kind of on the same level. We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about Spark, the presenting sponsor of the series. Spark is a Dutch NGO with a difference. Since being founded by two Dutch students in the 1990s to stem the degradation of higher education in the Balkans, the organization has grown to deliver expert services in 15 of the world's most vulnerable countries, including Libya, Liberia, and Syria. Spark bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship by providing scholarships to displaced people, catalyzing student participation through civic leadership, and providing entrepreneurs with the support they need to succeed. To learn more about how Spark is rebuilding futures through vocational education and SME growth programs in the Middle East, as well as North and Sub-Saharan Africa, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. So step one, you're, you're finding legal means to ensure that you, you preserve the, the sanctity of your mission going forward. Okay, so what next? So also, um, I think... One of the things I've been looking at is that I think fair trade is not enough. I think it only it still leaves people at a certain level. So we're really looking into how we can create wealth for the women by, one, paying good wages, um, two, working on savings, and three, looking into the cooperative model versus, like, what about just them owning some options in the company? Because that was going to be my next question. Uh, there's also the question of you know, participating in the economic aspect, you know, beyond growing the stuff, harvesting it, the access to markets, obviously what you bring to the table in a way that those women and the community you're serving or working with can't do or be for themselves. How do we bring them on board in that respect? I'm teasing out what for many is like the, the, the classic the tech would fix that, you know? There's a big trend towards this in other supply chains around the continent, certainly in the East Africa region. Um, big plays getting big venture capital investments, the likes of Twigger, for example, um, solving for supply chain management and, and a myriad of apps trying to ensure that the farmer is connected to the market in a way they never were before. What do you make of these kind of things? Well, in our region with our women, I mean, we have even trouble communicating with them because they don't have even an analog phone. So any sort of tech solution 
is not really possible at the moment because they don't have, I mean, they would, we would have to, I think, as a company, build in something where they get smartphones and get trained in how to use them. Um, we would like, as they do in also Morocco for the Argonne Oil Cooperatives, they do literacy training and uh, numeracy training. So as we grow, we do plan to do that. So then, yeah, at some point, maybe we could work in a mobile, where these women learn how to use mobile phones and then learn how to use apps. But that said, their children are who we actually, they're the ones who are in secondary school for the most part. They share in translation and they're better with numbers and possibly there could be something there because I'm sure that, you know, while they might not have a smartphone, that that's something that they could pick up or have used before. So my intended interrogating this is obviously somewhat poking holes in or challenging some of the popularly held notions about the, the wholesale changes that we are seeing on the continent as a result of, of, of the mobile revolution, for example. And, and I suppose it's just really important to me to, to demonstrate to people that there isn't a single story that's ap applicable across the continent. There, there are lots of nuances, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think, you know, in areas that are so impoverished where they haven't had a lot of exposure and there is still a lot of illiteracy that, yeah, mobile tech solutions at the moment are not the solution. There has to be other forms of education in between there. And, that, and then with some also supply chains where there's a new product for the market, it's still a little bit challenging. I think it's easier in an agricultural supply chain where you're selling maize or you're selling bananas or something. Banana. Yeah, you're looking for a market that exists. So you're just you're making connections. Sometimes with some businesses, you just have to do the the nitty gritty, hard, you know, labor intensive work. And the innovation will come, I feel like, because you'll these ideas that we're having are also coming from different things we're seeing in the in the media. And then also on the ground when we're working with the women. And yeah, sometimes you just got to like get your hands and make a product, be a maker also. Yeah. So speak to someone who perhaps grew up in Philadelphia like you, who um, finds you relatable because of your accent, your profile, someone in the global north or in the Western world, away from this continent that you've come to know far better than most, you know, even on the continent, and factor in commonly held misconceptions or, or misconceptions you encounter frequently and um, perhaps surprising or su perhaps things that might surprise our listeners about the reality of doing business in Africa, quote-unquote? I think that a lot of the perceptions about Africa is that, you know, we grow up with parents saying, you know, there's kids starving in Africa. You better eat what's on your plate. I think that kind of has put this mentality for people that Africa is a victim. And I really think that people on the continent or especially where I'm working in northern Uganda and I'd worked in South Sudan, um, people really are more, they're w working hard, they're, no they're very normal families, it's, they're just regular people who can really do and have and make things and um, I think there's a lot of things like, oh, we need to go and help Africa and I think that's really kind of the wrong approach. I really see what we're doing as a partnership. I don't see myself as helping. Um, I see this as like these women are my business partners and it's, I feel very honored to be able to work with them 
Um, and I think that their contribution is huge and that they don't need my help. I need their help as much as they need, you know, my market help to get the product to market. I need their help to uh, make the product. I really see working in partnership with the continent and not as um, what most of the West feels that they need to go and help. And there's so much potential. And I just feel like sometimes a lot of it just needs to be unlocked. And I think it's just waiting to be unlocked. When I was with working with Spark before, we were training entrepreneurs and there was just these fantastic, brilliant ideas coming from these guys that just weren't given the opportunity to like, have it. They just needed one to hear outside external ideas or to, they just needed one little thing to switch their mindset. And, the, and it like unlocked a whole universe for them. For example, one of the guys um, in our business plan competition, he was he's a medical doctor um, and he went, came to the competition to, for goats. He wanted to do a goat farm. Um, and he just, he was living in Uganda, then went, was trained there, moved back to South Sudan, wasn't thinking about anything that big, came to our training, learned about business development, entrepreneur, making cash flows, making budgets, uh, raising funding from different people. Um, to my disappointment, didn't win our business plan competition, but he ended up having a much better result because he left, wrote a whole business plan for starting a school for clinicians, fun funded some of it himself, then became an unreasonable fellow in Uganda. Now he travels all over, finding, getting funding from different funders. And he's opened a school. He opened a school in South Sudan, and during the war they just closed it, but he reopened it in Arua. And he's trained I don't know how many uh, clinicians, which is what we would consider nurse practitioners uh, in, this, in the U.S. He's trained them from all over South Sudan, Nuba Mountains. Um, and this is just from one, opening one little socket in his mind. Because there's just not a lot of exposure from the outside. I think I think the interaction with the global community and global ideas and innovative thinking and um, it's just what you know, just that little as we spark that you know would help really kind of um, get what's already there kind of to to grow really big. The beneficiary model is so ingrained in some places because that has been the dominant approach. So there's a lot of expectation of handouts at the moment, but that's hopefully going to be changing, especially in other countries outside, which are not so war-torn. Um, but in business, whenever um, we approach a community or I work with the women, I go with my colleague who's from the local community, and we have an honest conversation on how, you know, I am not here as a... I'm not here as a NGO worker. I'm not here as a you know, and to give anything out, we're, we're here to do business. This is a business and we want to partner with you. So right up front, that's the conversation. So if you provide quality product, we can get market. Um, and we're, yeah, we're definitely your partner. We're not your... We're, your fairy godmother. Yeah, we're not coming from outside to do anything, to like dream up some like funny project and then implement it in your community. Yeah. Right. So perhaps to, you know, to close on a light note, how do you end up in Sudan? doing school in Sudan like that's that's a pretty unique experience so I didn't go to school in in Sudan you met people who yeah so I went to the University of Vermont and and you met Sudanese people see I wasn't oh, listening yeah. I didn't hear I, I missed that yeah so then I met there's a lot of South Sudanese in my university there's a lot of South Sudanese in Vermont so I became very involved in the South Sudanese community 
Um, and, and the Lost Boys led you home. Yeah. So then the, the war was over. My friend Abraham, who's still a really good friend, um, he invited me to meet his mom. He said he hadn't talked to his mom in 17 years. And he's like, oh, would you, I'm going to go meet my mom in Sudan. And I, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to come. And then my parents were and just said, no, no way. But then I still like kept that dream and I, we started an organization together. So then I had to go and register the organization and then start working there. So, and then fell in love. I mean, South Sudan has a lot of challenges, but it's still, there's lovely people and it's a lovely place. It's just run into some really, really nasty things in the past few years, but hopefully, you know. It, there's still a lot of challenges, but we'll, we'll keep the hope alive that it's going to change. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup, Lauren. Uh, and all the best with, with this brand. Are you ready to put it out in the world as something that's on its way? Or should we, keep, should we sort of wait till like a big announcement or something of that nature? So we, do, so we have the supply company and the brand. And so the brand is going to be launching in the spring. What's it called? Um, it's called La Lope Tree. Um, so La Lope is how you say the name of the tree in South Sudan. In Arabic, it's La Lobe, um, but in South Sudan, they say La Lope. So I find it very pretty, and it means a lot. It has a lot of meaning to me and to South Sudanese. So, but the Desert Day Tree Company, a, a going concern. You're happy to take uh, meetings, and people can reach out um, if they're interested. Certainly, is that right? Yeah, I could talk about both companies because the products are ready. Um, but yeah. The more official launch will be in April, but I can talk about both. Links in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.